Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We've taken Worldview on the road this week. First, we went to London, Ontario, then to Flint and Dearborn in Michigan. You can follow the trip at wbez.org slash wvbus. On social media, use hashtag wvbus. Today, we are in Detroit at WDET, the public radio station in Detroit. And you can... Um, where our focus on this hour is going to be grassroots organization that are making Detroit a better place. And Detroit has some legendary grassroots activism. First, we're going to find out about a neighborhood rebuilding effort. Mark Crane is the project director of Dream of Detroit, a Muslim-led community development initiative on the west side of the city. It is great to meet you, Mark Crane. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Um, Now, the Muslim Center has a really interesting history. Um, Give us a little of the background here. Yeah, absolutely. So the Muslim Center is the the mosque and community center that's at the the anchor of our uh, what we call our impact turf, our target area for our development project. Um, and it comes out of the tradition of the Nation of Islam. Um, the Muslim Center was an outgrowth of a masjid called today called Masjid Wali Muhammad, which was actually the original temple number one of the Nation of Islam. Um, it's where you know some sixty years ago almost. Uh, uh, minister Malcolm X was an assistant minister for a year before moving on to Harlem. Um, uh, it's an, it's the, the original temple was actually uh, in the historic Black Bottom neighborhood of Detroit, which was um, uh, notoriously paved over uh, by one of our mayors in the 50 and made way for a, f- a freeway, uh, this, this really thriving um, Black sort of independent neighborhood. Um, and when that happened, a lot of communities and families moved westward. Uh, the Muslim community did the same. Um, and then in 1975, uh, the temple became a, a mosque. And, uh, and and the Muslim Center kind of grows out of that. It's been in the neighborhood for 30 years, um, and it's been a stalwart both for the Muslim community in Detroit, but also just for the surrounding neighborhood. Can you give us an idea of what the surrounding neighborhood is like? Because you're doing community development there. It, it must need some stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a neighborhood that was definitely hard hit by, um, you know, the, the housing crisis, the, the, the Great de- the, the Depression, if you will. Um, it's a neighborhood, uh, you know, when you look at sort of, if you were to look at a Google map time view, this is the sort of neighborhood where you would start in 2009 and you'd see full, uh, fully inhabited blocks. And then over a six-year span, you would just see the blocks kind of hollow out. Um, you see a lot of vacancies open up. Then you'd see those homes be gone altogether. And then so you see, you see blocks that start with, um, you know, uh, like I said, full at one point, and less than a decade later, there are only two or three homes left. So it's it's an area that was incredibly hard hit, um, and it's one that has been slow to rebound, but that we see a lot of hope in. Now, I understand that the city had a um, a kind of plan on what to do with the land, and they had an idea for a green corridor around this area because there was there was so much gone. I guess they figured, well, green, let's green corridor this. Yeah. Well, you know, and and that's the thing because when we say so much gone, it's like what are what are we valuing, right? Um, you know, I know families that have been in that neighborhood for 50, 60 years, two and three generations, have no plans to leave. You know, the mosque itself has been there for thirty years. Uh, there's a, a a theater there that's been there for sixty years. Uh, the Muslim community runs a free health clinic that's been there for ten years. So um, so there's a lot there, and there's been a lot of investment there by the local community. But uh, the city looked at it, and I don't say the city, but this was the previous administration, um, and it was a group called the Detroit Future City uh, um, Organization. They put out a 50-year framework for land use in the city. Um, and this was an area that they called a, quote-unquote, ecological innovation zone. And they said, you know, the population loss is too great. It's not coming back. We should, uh, we should retain this sort of area for shallow pools that will collect rainwater runoff. Or um, they had one quote that was uh, controlled overgrowth. 
You know, and I say, just like, honestly, ask any woman walking past this lot at night how controlled the overgrowth is. You know, um, it was really kind of comical. We, we, it's like we a green it, expressway coming through. You know, we called it benevolent redlining because yeah. what it did was not only was that their vision, but it, but that stopped other resources from coming into our area, right? Because all the other institutional funders in the in that city then said, hey, you know what? The long-term, you know, vision for that area is nil. So we're not going to send any money there now. Well, how did you start turning things around? This this looks like the hammer is coming down on the neighborhood. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 been um, an effort, and it's been sort of showing and proving. It's been showing folks like like people at the city and housing and development and, and other departments that hey, there is an, a coordinated um, effort over here that's serious and that's committed, um, and that in and of itself is is a reason to start to rethink resource allocation. Um, but it's been leveraging the community. We've, we've seen so much community support. You know, we've rehabbed almost 10 homes so far. Uh, we've engaged over 400 volunteers over the few years. Um, we've graduated 50 people from an entrepreneurship training course. Um, and so much of that has been done with um, small donations from community members um, and, some, and some large gifts as well from some supportive families and foundations. I'm talking with Mark Crane. He's the project director of Dream of Detroit. It's a Muslim-led community development initiative on the west side of the city. Now, I understand you were uh, inspired in part by Chicago's inner city Muslim Action Network. And um, yeah. you, you, you were a Chicagoan at one time for a while and <laughs> yeah, got Ch- to know what they were doing. Chicago is, is a second home for me. Um, absolutely. Actually, was uh, I was married in Chicago. Um, I went to school right outside of Chicago, and after graduating, had a chance to, like you say, work at the Inner City Muslim Action Network um, uh, with Dr. Rami Nashashibi and, and the whole team over there. Um, and it was an incredible two years for me. It was really formative. I was a brand new Muslim. Um, I accepted Islam in my senior year of college. Um, so this was a place where I got to land and sort of explore this new faith tradition that I was engaging in with social justice, which was the sort of path that I had always kind of been on. Um, and this place sort of really brought them together in a really um, kind of grounded way. Uh, So like I said, I was there for a little over two years, um, really one of the most formative two-year stretches of my entire life. Uh, And they continue to actually be supportive of the work that we're doing here in Detroit, too. So we're grateful. And the idea of their work and in your work now is integrated community development. That is a part of uh, the faith. That is the part of the community. That is the, the, that is the, you're weaving them all together. Yeah. And, and and, you know, it looks different. Um, You know, we came here and, and, you know, the same sort of model of a a health clinic and the the food access and um, the sort of restorative justice that exact model didn't didn't fit our neighborhood. There were some other priorities. We had to really look at housing. There was already a clinic there. Thank goodness. Um, we've now we're we're actually finishing up the rehab on our first transitional home. Uh, one of Iman's largest programs is their green reentry transitional program. And so we have something sort of similar in the works. It's not exactly the same, but. Um, but we had to look at our landscape, and, and again, it looked a little bit different. But like you said, the commonality there was this sort of integration, trying to meet people's needs sort of where they are while trying to organize people toward you know where we could be. So we talk about the world as it is and the world as it could be. Oh, you got involved in the foreclosure crisis and the for- advocating about the what to do about the, the, all these foreclosures. Yeah. Uh, explain the, the terrain there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for us, this was to say, you know, how can we keep raising tens of thousands of dollars to rehab homes and not deal with the systemic issue making our neighborhoods look like this, right? So uh, we joined a, something called the Coalition to End Unconstitutional Tax Foreclosures. Um, it's actually anchored by a lawyer, uh, you know, from Chicago. Let's say she's on loan to us right now, nice. <laughs> uh, Bernadette Atuhene. And, and they've done, she's done such great work. Her research showed that from 2011 to 2015, 
you know, there were there were one in four homes that were foreclosed on in the city of Detroit. Um, we're talking 100,000 properties. Um, and, and the vast majority of those on any given year from 55 to 85 percent of those homes had been overassessed um, in some cases by, you know, a complete order of magnitude. Um, and so you had people whose homes were essentially being taken from them for taxes they shouldn't have had to pay in the first place. Now, why is the overassessment done? How do people do that? If if you're try- kind of really trying to work to keep the city together, yeah. why would you do that? So I would say that, you know, not everything is nefarious, right? So I, there was a systemic failure at the assessor's office in terms of their capacity to handle the job at hand. And so after the market crashed and all the housing values plummeted, they just didn't keep up with the assessments. Um, and, and, but, I, but what then happened is the properties, um, they go to, from the city to the county, and the county is the entity that, that forecloses on these properties that then puts them into an auction. And it's an auction that historically has been exploited by people who just want to buy up land in the city and sit on it. Um, and so you'll see a family lose their home. They may have owed uh, you know, $3,000 in taxes. It'll get taken from them, and then it'll sell in the auction for $2,000. And so, um, you know, there was definitely a, a capacity and sort of a competence issue that led to this. But at some level, we have to say, okay, this was a political failure. There was never an intervention to make this right. Um, and so that's what this coalition is pushing toward, a set of, you know, political interventions. All right. What, what would that look like? I'm, I'm curious about you know, how you stop foreclosures. Well, so the first thing is that the research continues to show that the, the overassessments are, continue. And, you know, uh, which, what we saw was that on, in sort of the, on, on the lower the end of the spectrum, homes that had lower values were being uh, more systematically, you know, overassessed. And what we saw was that those are, of course, the households that don't necessarily have the resources to challenge those overassessments. So, of course, it's poor people being impacted by this, you know, the most. So what we've said is, you know, we're pushing for a stop on the property tax auction until we can prove that these unconstitutional overassessments have ended. Um, we're, we're asking for Detroit Detroiters, or at this point, former Detroiters, we've lost so many people because of this crisis, um, that they be compensated. Um, and, you know, and we're trying to model that. So we, there's one program we call it the Dignity Housing Restoration Program, where we've purchased homes and then given them to families who lost their homes through this process, uh-huh. who have been overassessed. And we're saying to the city, you have 30,000 homes in the land bank that are vacant. Put together a program that gives these homes to these people and gives them the resources to rehab and move in um, because it's better for everyone. Now, it's interesting. You were recently visited by the mayor on your project, and Dream of Detroit was uh, engaged at the highest level of city government. Can you tell us about that experience? Are they open to the kind of things you're talking about? Um, you know, well, to his credit, I think the mayor has has a track record of, of really engaging folks across the city, um, you know, f- pretty directly. And, you know, um, I think what what, what we... Uh, learned in those discussions was that if we sort of kept our shoulder to it and we showed some progress and some real serious interest and scalable interest in our project, that, um, that again, the way the city is looking at resource allocation could, could be, you know, re-explored. Um, you know, that said, as the city gets further and further from bankruptcy, as, um, as the cash surplus becomes more and more flush, um, you know, part of our organizing work is to say, okay, we all went through this horrible, you know, crash and bankruptcy together. And we know that, you know, that, that, you know, we had to tighten our belt, so to speak, collectively. But now that the resources are there, let's make sure they're getting to the right neighborhoods. Let's make sure they're getting to the neighborhoods like ours that need them. Um, and so, again, that's where our organizing work comes in. 
Can you describe how the city would engage with your project and, and what would be really beneficial for you? Um, yeah, that's that's a really great question. So um, I think it, one of the most beneficial things would be, you know, um, a really proactive conversation around land use in our neighborhood, um, particularly the, the residential lots uh, that are left within sort of our impact turf um, and how those might be bundled for some sort of small scale or incremental uh, development. Um, also particularly interested in resources that could be given toward sort of main street development, if you can call it that. So of course, in our neighborhood, like many others, we sort of have one stretch that's kind of the main commercial strip. Uh, of course, it's a stretch that at one point was lined with buildings and quite thriving. And it's today, you know, a lot of fields, unfortunately, fields and parking lots. But that's where we see promise to bring a sort of brick and mortar business presence back into the neighborhood um, and sort of partnering with the city to figure out what that looks like would be incredible. I'm talking with uh, Mark Crane. He is a project director for Dream of Detroit. It's a Muslim-led community development initiative on the west side of the city. We're in uh, Detroit today as we continue our shows on the road, and we're finding out about some of the grassroots organizations here. Uh, I wanted to um, explore a little more about what it means to you know, be connected with the community and who you're connecting with. I know that you're working with um, Pakistani Muslims on this project, uh, African American Muslims working with uh, others, mm-hmm. other other Muslim community sure. members. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, so so for us, this is a really important part of our project. Um, you know, the reality is we live, you know, in a city that's that's eighty three percent black, and we live in a neighborhood that's you know ninety one percent black. So um, for us, you know, keeping an emphasis on that sort of uh, character and culture of the neighborhood is, is really important. And, and again, our mosque sort of comes out of that black Muslim tradition. You know, we consider it today, you know, sort of an orthodox Sunni masjid, if you will. And it's a really a place where that is um, bringing together a lot of the sort of historical congregations from the Detroit Muslim sort of uh, landscape. Um, so, uh, you know, that said, that's sort, of, that's sort of where it's all rooted. And we know that if this project is really going to be successful, you know, that it has to have the support and the leadership of the, of the local black Muslim community in particular um, in a city like Detroit. We also, you know, we're inspired by um, people like Malcolm X, who, who, who said that, you know, Islam could solve the race problem in America. Um, and, you know, and again, you know, I, t- I mentioned earlier the world as it is and as it could be, you know, um, Malcolm X was this incredible, and I think we were blessed to have him here in Detroit for a short time, but this incredible figure who um, painted this aspirational picture, but he was also very real. He talked about Islam as a solution and this sort of universal community and brotherhood and sisterhood and these things, while also um, giving a really keen analysis of the way this emergent immigrant Muslim community and this existing black Muslim community were, were either coming together or were not coming together and where priorities were being given. Um, he wrote in a letter to um, a, a man named Saeed Ramadan um, uh, shortly before he died. He wrote in a letter where he told him, um, you know, Islam is, is my religion, but but I can't abandon black people and black politics in this country. And in fact, you know, we see fertility, we see such uh, ample opportunity for growth among, of, of Islam amongst the black community, and yet your brothers and sisters are coming from different parts of the world and are focusing their attention largely on white Americans. And why is that? So he had this analysis that was both, again, aspirational and recognized the potential of universality, um, while also being real about what, you know, this society we're in. Well, uh, it's been great meeting you, and congratulations on everything you're doing with Dream of Detroit. 
Mark Crane is the project director for Dream of Detroit, a Muslim-led community development initiative on the west side of the city. And if people want to Google Dream of Detroit, they would uh, find the website Yeah, dreamofdetroit.org. They'd find it there. And we're appreciative of everyone's support. And I appreciate your time, Jerome. I didn't mean to end on such a down note. We were talking happily before we got into the analysis. Uh, well, well, that was uh, it was an appropriate note. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Mark Crane from the Dream of Detroit Project. Coming up after the break, we will continue our road show in Detroit and talk about Detroit's urban agriculture boom. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Our roadshow continues in Detroit as we celebrate 25 years of Worldview. We're at WDET, Detroit's public radio station, and I'm talking with grassroots organizers in Detroit. You can follow the whole trip that we're taking online at wbez.org slash wvbus. On social media, you can use hashtag wvbus. Worldview's food and culture sustainability contributor has taken the train up from Chicago and is here with us in Detroit. Great to see you, Monica. Great to see you guys. Monica Ng is here, and she's been looking around and checking out the urban ag scene already. Got off the train and ran right out. We sure did. Last night we went to the Peace Tree Park Garden and met Eric Andrews. And boy, it was a hot night, but he was out there working in the tomatoes and the peppers and the watermelons and the, the the kale. And we even got to take some kale home and celery. And boy, oh boy, they've got some incredible urban agriculture out here in Detroit. Yep, we had a fine salad last night at the Worldview Hacienda House. We sure did. <laughs> um, with us is Denise Thompson. She is program director of Feedem Freedom Growers. It's a Detroit-based community farm on the east side of the city, and we're going to talk about urban ag. Great to see you, Denise. Thanks for joining us. Myrtle Denise. Myrtle Denise, yes. Hi. Um, I'm glad to be here. Now, I was reading that you think of what you're doing um, as a revolutionary act of love for ourselves and others. Can you talk about how, how urban ag is more than just growing something? For me, and I want to generally speak for the rest of the Feed and Freedom Growers, um, that revolutionary act of love for self and others stems from uh, wanting to uh, partake or participate in taking care of ourselves, uh, creating those spaces where we are free to express creativity, uh, reclaim the resources that... uh, we have. And um, when you think about food and we all partake, you want the best. You want what's fresh. You want what's clean. And so when I talk about um, loving myself um, and loving others, that is just one way to show it through how we grow, how we eat, and how we uh, take care of those those things that take care of us. Now, now, speaking of how you grow, uh, you you really want to stick to organic and natural practices. Why is that important? 
it's important because we are faced with a lot of uh, pollutants every day in a, a matter of, I have a sensitive skin or what you would call, I, I have allergies. And so my body can only handle so many, getting rid of so many toxins. And so if I can control one aspect of the toxins that are going into my body, let it be through food. And so uh, all natural practices and organic practices are very important, as well as how um, we maintain control of uh, the seeds that are in our food, because seeds mean that there's a continuum. And uh, non-GMO and food that doesn't have pollutants on it, which could later on cause harmful damage to our bodies, is a very important uh, aspect of why we garden. Uh, Myrtle, you've been doing this for 10 years. How how did you get started doing this? So that's the fun question. (laughs) (laughs) One of those reasons was uh, my partner, Wayne Curtis's high blood pressure and my allergies. Uh, But it stems further back. Uh, My partner uh, has a long history of activism, um, going back to the uh, free breakfast program with the Black Panther Party. And um, when we moved to the space where we are now, there was a, just a lot of vacant land that we had to take care of. We had to keep the grass cut. We had to do these things. And so uh, how do we become good neighbors in our new neighborhood? How do we create a space that will be welcoming and appreciated? So we decided to join the Garden Resource Program, and along with the connections to uh, other growers, uh, his connections to uh, DBCFSN, which is Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, our relationship to the uh, James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership, and all these other wonderful attributes, um, we decided to create a garden. And our tagline be- be- began, um, grow a garden, grow a community. And so that was our entry point into uh, the Manistique Street um, and we became really good neighbors, and uh, we started with a small plot, uh, six or seven raised beds on one plot of land. Now we've expanded. How big? <laughs> well, we're four city lots, and we also we're working on a cultural hub at the 291 Project House further down on Manistique Street. Wow, that that's pretty good. That's a lot. Uh, what do you do with the food? How do you distribute? Do you sell it? Do you, do you share it with neighbors? Or how what do, you... do we do with the food is always a question that comes up. So as a um, eater of it, <laughs> <laughs> we eat the food. We um, use the food in our programming as part of our Cook Fresh workshops. Um, there are always events that happen around the city, and local chefs uh, may ask for uh, food uh, to purchase. Um, we donate food to food pantries. We have a small market. We also have a new farm stand, so we'll be creating a new uh, farmer's market on Manistique. Um, and volunteers are free to uh, you uh, take the food. We share with our neighbors, and we share with our family. So um, we try not to waste. Uh, we also are part of Grape Seed Detroit, where our food will actually be used as part of uh, Detroit wine. So, yeah, I noticed that you know no no urban farms in Chicago seem to be part of uh, vineyards, and so has have they already made that wine, or is it the wine is being produced? Our our grapes are just now coming into uh, being mature enough to be used and at a volume that would make it beneficial. But Grape Seed Detroit made the initial uh, investment in our grapevines, and 
uh, our grapes are really happy where they are and they're doing well. So we look forward to this fall um, selling our grapes to Grapes uh, Detroit Winery. Well, that sounds cool. You know, so, you know, I've looked at Urban Ag for a long time. And for some years, people were saying, well, you know, Urban Ag is going to be the secret to a whole bunch of living living wage jobs. Others say, no, that's really not the point of Urban Ag. It has so many other intangible benefits. What do you see as really what Urban Ag can do for us? Wow. Um, At Feed and Freedom Growers... Um, looking at urban ag as a entry point to social justice issues, it led me directly to understanding food sovereignty. Um, you can't talk about food without talking about land, air, water, um, the people. Um, if you get stuck on the economics of it, then you, for me, it's a manipulation of it would be creating a small agribusiness, and that is directly uh, 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 in opposition to why we got into urban ag in the first place. So it, it does raise issues and shines a light on food, um, how it gets to us, how it's manipulated, um, and, and the practices around um, our areas of agriculture. I'm ta- I mean, uh, I'm talking with Myrtle Denise Thompson, Program Director of Feedem Freedom Growers, a Detroit-based community farm system on the east side of the city. Monica Eng is here with me from WBEZ, and we're talking with uh, grassroots organizers in Detroit as we continue our road show here on Worldview. And uh, you, you were telling us earlier that there are a lot of young people out there working uh, on the <laughs> farm right now, and... I hope you're listening. I hope you're not overheated. Get some water. Oh, talk about community engagement and what you what you get out of that, and the, what these young people are figuring out. So we've been um, able to have a youth enrichment gardening program uh, since we started, and it became it came organically from the curiosity of the young folks to find out what we were doing. They enjoyed the wonderful flowers, the beehive, um, and just you know an open space where they were free to come and sit and just mill about or ask questions. And so community engagement uh, looks like having a community roundtable discussion uh, near the garden site or in our local area about topics that are uh, important in our neighborhood at this moment. It looks like having a a community uh, cook fresh workshop where folks get an opportunity to be in the garden, harvest, and uh, cook with the food and then eat what we've grown and cooked together and to learn ways or, uh, to integrate more fresh produce and vegetables into our, our daily diets. It looks like uh, taking our young folks and giving them skills to outreach through the, in the community through social, social um, uh, Internet skills or door-to-door or uh, learning how to create a roundtable discussion. But right now we have a five-week intensive program where these young people will come three days a week for five hours a day to learn to garden, to learn about nutrition, and to learn about community outreach and critical analysis. 
Now, uh, we were talking about how, you know, it can be tough to get young people who are not used to eating fruits and vegetables to enjoy them. And one of the ways is to get them involved in these growing programs. But you also had a terrific recipe or two that you thought could really entice people to eat more vegetables. Can you share a couple of those? Okay, I'll do the first recipe that I talked about. And this one, it, it really surprised me because it's so easy. It's so simple. It's your favorite pasta. Um, whether it's a rice pasta or a whole wheat pasta or um, something like that, you take arugula, mm-hmm. um, maybe a pound of arugula. You'll take an avocado. You will take some lemon juice. You'll take some olive oil, some sea salt and pepper. And I'm trying to make sure I'm not leaving something out. No and garlic? A little a little garlic because mm-hmm. the arugula is, is spicy yeah. enough. But you blend it if you have a Vitamix or a really good blender. And you could also heat it up through that process. And you pour it over that done pasta. Mm. And it's a beautiful green. It has a wonderful smell. And the children seem to love it. And the other recipe I got from another gardener um, is a chickpea salad. And Mm -hmm. that is a wonderful transition food. If folks are just really um, hesitant about giving up meat, but they like Tuna salad, chicken salad, you would love chickpea salad. And the recipe is so similar, you're just using chickpeas in place of the tuna or the um, uh, meat and the avocado in place of the mayo. Oh, wow. (laughs) You you blend it. Yes, you blend them. So they're very um, transitional foods. But I would definitely involve young people or children in the process of what uh, what they're taking in through shopping letting them pick the vegetables and fruits that they like, um, letting them see you eating those vegetables and fruit. And their hands-on children love to chop, tear, and be part of the process of getting fresh fruits and vegetables into them. And if those are things that are available, they will go for them, mm. believe me. Is there a favorite thing that you really like to grow uh, I, I don't I don't grow chickpeas. I I don't know why. I, don't, I mean, maybe I. I don't grow out. chickpeas, but I do. <laughs> My favorite thing to grow right now are bell peppers, and it's because they are so beautiful Crispy, when they're delicious. T- <laughs> they are delicious, but they're just you get to see the baby bell pepper grow, 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 and they taste wonderful, and they grow nice and neat. You don't have to stick them up like you do tomatoes and fuss with them, but bell peppers are my favorite. But I grow a lot of perennials right now and herbs and uh, things like that, sage, um, fennel grows really fast, dill grows really fast. Those things are wonderful. Now, I don't want to bring things down, but uh, a lot of people have heard about this Afrofuture Fest and the controversy controversy about the tickets. And you guys aren't, you know, the people who are running it, but um, it, you are the host. And and uh, what is what is it that we're not hearing in the media around the sensational story? I mean, and this is the story where uh, you're charging white people more to get in. So um, Freedom Freedom is the host organization, and we've used our space for Af- Detroit Afrofuture Youth for the past two years. This will be our third year. Um, I am... When we were first, when we first got involved with Detroit Afro Future Youth, it was uh, asked to be a healing space where there would be Reiki, there would be uh, libations, there would be music, and there would be young people who are coming 
to have a space where they can um, just be young, um, dealing with each other, and having being surrounded by adults who are uh, bringing care and concern and helping them overcome some things. So, of course, um, our space, we, will, we definitely consider it a healing space. But with this, uh, the ticket pricing, I understand the reasoning behind the ticket pricing. It's been done many times, many ways in other forms. Uh, maybe the language was too audacious for some, but what hasn't been talked about is the harmful, harassing, threatening phone calls, uh, Freedom Freedom, or myself, what I've got. And I think that um, the or the artists who pulled out could have chosen a different route as to have discourse with the organizers instead of going straight to Twitter. And I think that is one of the most harmful things that I see happening today is the lack of civil discourse over issues that we don't agree. And so uh, I, 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 I do know that the ticket pricing was changed because of respect and love for the elders and the young people who are being harmed by that language of hate and um, that the organization Detroit Afro Future Youth is has garnered a lot of support outside of the hate. Um, me, myself, I, as a co-founder and project director of Freedom Freedom Growers, has gotten a lot of support from those organizations and those activists and the elders and uh, even wonderful young people in our community who know of the work that we do and know that we believe in raising our humanity, and we are not a divisive organization whatsoever, and neither is Detroit Afro Future Youth. It's just we need a space sometimes to be able to be ourselves and be vulnerable. And so um, without the hate and the uh, harmful language that I, I don't think that because you disagree with me, you have to be hateful or harmful um, and threatening and di- close yourself off to discourse. I think we should listen more and have more face-to-face. Myrtle Denise Thompson is the program director for Feedem Freedom Growers. It's a Detroit-based community farm on the east side of the city. Monica Eng is Worldview's food, culture, and sustainability contributor and is looking into urban ag here in Detroit. Great to see you both, and uh, I look forward to walking around and checking out the Feedem Freedom Growers plots this afternoon. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We're in Detroit today as our road show on Worldview continues this week. Coming up after the break, if water is a human right, should cities cut off thousands of people's water for non-payment? We'll talk with an organizer about access to water. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're in Detroit today at WTDET, the public radio station in Detroit. And you can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus. On social media, you can find us at the hashtag wvbus. Chicago's new mayor says the city will no longer cut off water if people can't pay. In Detroit, organizers are fighting to get the same kind of concession. With me is Monica Lewis-Patrick. She is co-founder and president and CEO of We the People of Detroit, a community-based grassroots organization raising awareness on civil rights, 
Land, Water, and Other Issues. Great to meet you. Good to be here. I wonder if you could, we're going to talk about water, but um, there is a larger context here with the foreclosure situation as it evolved in Detroit. It's very connected to the water issue. Can you give us the um, million-foot view of uh, what's been happening with this? Well, one, just to make sure that people uh, have context for where we are. We sit in the city of Detroit that up until 1997 had the largest home ownership per capita in the country. So that meant that uh, for a city that's over 85 percent people of color, uh, specifically African-Americans, uh, that we had a history of owning our homes, uh, that uh, black folks in Detroit had invested in their land and their property uh, in paying taxes and maintaining that property. What we saw play out over the 90s and into the early 2000s before the whole country was taken into a financial crisis is that we saw predatory lending playing out. Uh, we have uh, a major captain of industry here in Dan Gilbert, uh, who has had several federal investigations along the lines of his potential predatory lending practices. Uh, but then he was able to capture property for pennies on the, on the dime. And so on the dollar. And so we see over and over again that uh, monies that were allocated through the Obama administration uh, during the stimulus package that should have kept Detroiters in their home, that could have paid back taxes and uh, actually upgraded those homes, were reallocated to do blight removal in the city of Detroit. But there's also research that was recently released about two and a half years ago that was conducted by Professor Bernadette Atenehu, who was a professor in the city of Chicago at one point. But I've had her on. She's amazing. She's amazing and brilliant. And what she was able to do is convene a number of uh, researchers along with other legal minds to look at what was happening in Detroit. And what we found is that since 2009, there's been a very unconstitutional and illegal uh, maneuver to take foreclosed households. And many of those households were placed into foreclosure uh, due to no fault of the homeowners themselves, other than being poor and struggling in a city, a major city. But what we found is that they had been illegally assessed, that many of those assessments uh, actually were taking those homeowners over 85 to 90 percent over what they should have been legally assessed. And then what we also know is that state law in the state of Michigan says that homes should not be lost uh, or seized in the city uh, or in the state of Michigan due to unaffordable water rates. And so what we saw in one year alone due to research that was done through my organization, We the People of Detroit, along with our Community Research Collective, is that we found in one year there were 15,000 homeowners that were forced into foreclosure just because they could not afford their water bills. And so what you find is there is discrepancies between what the city is doing and then how those houses are being transferred to the county and then how that predatory act is then removing over 100,000 homeowners in the city from access to their property. So uh, when you look at the number of people who've had their water cut off, it's almost a, it, it it's a parallel to the foreclosure thing practically, isn't it? I mean, there's uh, if, if you've got all these people losing their houses, they all had their water cut off. Well, you you have some parallels and correlations. I mean, what we know is that since 2014, over 142,000 citizens and and residents in the city of Detroit have been shut off from water. Uh, What we also know is right now, up to this date, there is no pathway of restoration to persons to get their water turned back on once it's already turned off. So you do not qualify for any of the services or subsidies in the city once you've lost your access to your water and sanitation. 
Now, are those services? Are, are the city has a programs that they um, they will help uh, kind of people who need help with paying their water bills, and they quote um, a lot of statistics. I was reading in the paper uh, that the water and sewage department sent out twenty three thousand notices through October first of last year, and um, the number of people. Uh, that had interruptions was 11,422. But um, out of those, they had 10,000 people who uh, entered the consumer assistance program or paid the balance. Um, is that a, is that common? Do people enter this consumer assistance program usually pay off the balance? And so there is not that many who end up with problems? Well, what we've found is that uh, many times the Water and Sewage Department is giving you the statistics of those persons that are still active uh, customers of the department. What we are speaking to is the persons that have uh, been cut off from the water and access to it for six months to maybe four or five years. We are talking about those citizens and residents in the city that have no pathway to water access. And what the estimates are, even with the agreement of DWSD, is that it ranges somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five to 40,000 households. And based on their statistical analysis, that is potentially three people per home. So you're looking at anywhere from 120,000 to 150,000 residents living in a major city without access to water and sanitation. What are they doing? What do when you see visit these people? Where, where how do they function? People are functioning in 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 all kinds of creative ways. Uh, they have neighbors that are running water hoses from house to house uh, to allow them to access some water in their homes. You have neighbors that are allowing people to have keys to their home to come in as they need to to take showers to access water for cooking, uh, to use the bathroom and the facilities. Uh, you have neighbors that are. Uh, that have actually themselves taken those neighbors' clothes and items and washed them and returned them to them. And I know people right now that have done that for six months to a year to help either a single mom be able to keep her job and keep her children. Uh, Another reason you're seeing major, um, I would consider, uh, blight and abandonment of properties is that there is a law in the state of Michigan that if you don't have running water in your household for 72 hours, you're in imminent danger of losing custody of your children. So for a city where you have seen redlining as it relates to auto insurance, we pay the highest auto rates in the country, Uh, to a city where 80% of the bankruptcy was levied on the backs of pensioners in this city, and the average pensioner's pension is $19,000 a year, then I would say to any community, no one could withstand all of those multiple assaults. But then to remove the very lifeline, which is water, Uh, you're looking at something that really is creating uh, devastating health impacts and the potential to harm any uh, potential comeback of the community of Detroit. I'm talking with Monica Lewis-Patrick. She's co-founder, president, and CEO of We the People of Detroit, a community-based grassroots organization that's raising awareness on civil rights, land, water, and other issues. And we're talking about water issues in particular here. Um, You know, when when you hear that kind of uh, story... And that there are these kinds of people um, living in this kind of situation. Um, how 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 come? Pub, what do public officials say? What do mayors say? What do they? Um, you know, right now the mayor says, "Well, we've got programs to get people uh, help with their water bills if they need it." Um, 
how, how does that work out? Well, the the mayor is is using a marketing strategy uh, that if he uh, if he says uh, the the programs are working enough that people may believe it. But what we are moving toward is what we know is a regional and state and national need to respond. Uh, when you look at what is happening across the nation, we're looking at about 11.6% of the country not able to afford their water right now. According to Dr. Elizabeth Mack, who is a professor at Michigan State University, by the year 2022, approximately 35.6% of the population will not be able to afford their water. So what we are seeing in Detroit is we are the canary in the mine for what is happening and playing out not only in the city of Detroit, but around the Great Lakes and across the country. There was recent research done by the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor that states that there is not only an affordability issue in the city of Detroit, but there's also an affordability issue in Oakland County, McClone County, Wayne County. So we're seeing this issue actually from a systemic perspective and really needing a systemic response. Uh, I am applauding right now the governor of the state of Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmore, who a couple of weeks ago at the convening of the Great Lakes governors and premiers uh, announced at that time she's prepared to move forward with a water affordability plan for the state of Michigan. And so uh, I am hopeful that the mayor will not stand in her way but would line up with that position. And you mentioned the the health uh, aspects of this. And uh, just to reiterate uh, the kind of things that happen when you turn off the water, there is a, to get it back on, if it's not. It's a sequence of events that are going to be very unhealthy for you. Uh, definitely. I mean, one of the things that we found in 2015, uh, we were very adamant that there had to be a public health uh, impact when you are shutting off water at the na- numbers that we saw and continue to see in the city of Detroit. And one of the things that we did is we reached out to Global Health Initiative that looks at these water disparities and health impacts all around the globe. And they took our water maps that we had uh, taken for several years to be able to facilitate and put in place. And they were able to lay over 37,000 cases from Henry Ford Health System over that particular mapping. And what they found is that if you live on a block that you have seen at least one person shut off from water, it increases the probability of a health impact to others on that block by 100%. And so what it showed from that particular research, just through the basic correlation, is that you have a 1.4, I think, a 1.4 percentage probability of getting sick in the city of Detroit if you live on those blocks. And all these areas where there is, uh, you know, more water infrastructure than there are houses, uh, there's water laying around in pipes that doesn't move around fast enough. And this is bacteria. There's all sorts of things that can happen. Well, the lack of flow and and just our basic science from fourth grade tells us that water sitting is going to breed pathogens, especially in the kind of heat that we're seeing as climate impacts are intensifying. Uh, But what we also know is that even in your more affluent communities, as water rates are increasing and fewer and fewer people are going to be able to pay, those that still can pay will actually uh, assume those increases. And so for us, it's about providing a pathway for all to be able to contribute into the infrastructure by paying what they can afford to pay, especially for those that meet the low-income bar of uh, federal guidelines between 150 to 200 percent. You know, when we hear about Detroit these days, we hear that the city is growing again, that population is moving in, the downtown uh, looks really nice and is better shape than it's been in a long time. 
Uh, how does what we're hearing kind of toggle with that? Uh, what is the uh, where, where do you how do you weigh this? Well, downtown is coming back, but it's coming back on the backs of those that stayed and paid. When 80 percent of a contrived bankruptcy was on the backs of Detroiters, when you look at the fact that many of those captains of industry were allowed to have their debts forgiven during the bankruptcy and allowed to have a fresh start, that has not been afforded to the citizens and residents of Detroit that have been here for decades. Uh, And I would say until we see an equitable and just uh, response to the residents that live in the neighborhoods, that don't live downtown, that don't shop downtown, and don't venture downtown, then we'll never actually fulfill, uh, I believe, what is the promise of the great city of Detroit to be this bright beacon of hope uh, for all humanity. Monica Lewis-Patrick is co-founder, president, and CEO of We the People of Detroit, a community-based grassroots organization raising awareness on civil rights, land and water, and other issues. Great to meet you, and congratulations on everything you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been a great time to be here in Detroit. We've uh, really enjoyed ourselves, and I want to thank everybody here at WDET, Rowan, and all the other folks here who hosted us today. It was great fun to be in a radio station again after being on the road in mosques and in other places, and uh, it was really enjoyable to have uh, radio functionality in, in front of me. I found it incredibly pleasing. Tomorrow, our road trip continues at Kalamazoo, and we'll be at Kalamazoo College. We'll talk about their long-running program that gives all public school students in Kalamazoo access to a free college education. I hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. You can follow our trip of Worldview at wbez.org slash wvbus on social media. We use the hashtag wvbus, and we're out there uh, enjoying ourselves. See behind-the-scenes pictures. It should be fun. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on the Road for its 25th anniversary on WBEZ Chicago.